Hello and welcome to Foresight. I'm Greg Williams. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Demis Hassabis, the CEO and co-founder of DeepMind. Demis might just be the living embodiment of the word polymath. He's a former chess prodigy, the recipient of a double first at the University of Cambridge, a five-time World Mind Sports Olympiad champion, an MIT and Harvard alumnus, and a teenage entrepreneur. Today, DeepMind is one of the world's leading AI research labs and is best known for developing AlphaGo, the first program to beat a world champion at Go, and for building multidisciplinary teams to work with computer scientists to tackle some of the most intractable challenges in science. DeepMind's published over a thousand research papers, including more than a dozen in nature and science, and achieved breakthrough results in many challenging AI domains. This conversation took part at Wired Live, our annual festival of ideas in November 2020. Before we start, one quick request. If you're enjoying this podcast series, I encourage you to go on whatever platform you get your podcasts on and give us a five-star review as it really does help us to grow the Wired community. Many thanks. It's much appreciated. Enjoy the conversation. Demis, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for coming in in person. No problem. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So um, last time we met, we talked a lot about the way that DeepMind is now moving into science and is now thinking about how it can impact, uh, how AI can impact uh, scientific research. Um, so I'm interested really, can you just describe that sort sure. of uh, that move to us? Yeah, well, I mean, it's always when we started DeepMind and actually even before DeepMind, for me, the ultimate vision of building AI was to try and use it as a tool to understand the world around us yeah. better. That's what I was dreaming about when my teenage years, when I first got into AI. And I've been working towards that my whole career and obviously deep-minded for the last 10 years. And um, what's exciting now is that maybe we've got to the point finally where our algorithms are powerful enough and mature enough that we can actually apply it to big scientific challenges yeah. and maybe help accelerate scientific discovery. So, you know, we're kind of most famous for our work on games, things like AlphaGo, as you mentioned, but really that was always just a proving ground for developing and testing and sort of um, uh, proving out these algorithms efficiently. Mm -hmm. And then the idea was to transfer them to things like science. And how do you think that scientific research is best organised in order to get optimal results? Well, I think there's, you know, there's different ways to try and organize scientific research. Um, the main one, academia, yeah. uh, which, you know, obviously I spent quite a lot of time in, is mostly bottom up, I would say. So the creativity sort of bubbles up from PhD students, postdocs and so on. Um, and it's kind of uh, a creative chaos, let's say. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got companies, startups, the best startups, which are mostly top down. And the great thing about those is they come with a lot of energy and pace and focus and intensity that you get with the best startups, as you know well. And I've always wondered why, and I've been, in, I've been lucky enough to be in both worlds, why you couldn't combine the best of those two worlds and yeah. have a kind of, you know, blue sky research group uh, or division, but with the same intensity you get from a startup kind of mentality. And that's what we tried to do at DeepMind. So in academia, generally, you know, you, you get you hire the smartest or you, 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 you recruit the smartest people you possibly can. Uh, you put them in a lab. Uh, you uh, say, see you in five years. And yeah, you close you the hope door. for the best. <laughs> close the door. 
<laughs> and when you open it five years later, maybe you have something, maybe you don't. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's not very coordinated, so it's not that efficient in many ways because, you, as you say, in in the top places, top universities, you have some of the smartest people in the world there. So the ingredients are there, yeah. and you give them time to think and so on. But there's no sort of macro coordination between you know beyond the kind of small lab level. Yeah. Like each lab is maybe coordinated, but there's no coordination on a bigger level than that. And in, in fact, it's designed for there not to be. Yeah. And so um, you know it makes it hard to really go after massive breakthroughs in an intense way over multi years, especially yeah. if it's interdisciplinary. Yeah. So there's some things like that that are quite hard to do actually in academia, I would say. I think the interdisciplinary bit's interesting because as far as I can understand, what you're doing at DeepMind is trying to build teams that have you know, multiple sort of areas, domains of expertise. Absolutely, so obviously our core thing is machine learning, yeah. but we also have neuroscientists, we have mathematicians, physicists, uh, and um, you know, and of course, engineering. Yeah. And um, engineering is our kind of uh, workbench, if you like. If you, yeah. if you, you know, the engineering is it makes it an empirical science. And obviously, we have some of the world's top engineers. But in academia, for example, if you're working in computer science, um, there isn't actually, weirdly, there isn't a career path for engineers. You have to be a research scientist, and then you've got the, you know, traditional PhD student, postdoc, and then you've got to try and make it to assistant prof. Yeah. But, but, but uh, if you want to be a career engineer in academia, there isn't really a, a sort of defined career yeah. path. So you obviously you end up losing some of the best engineers out of that. Yeah. Um, so there's many, many sort of strange things like that that would be odd to somebody who's not used to academia. Like, why does it work like that? It's just kind of the way it's always worked. And how do you get those individuals in those very, who have deep expertise of a particular domain mm. to kind of communicate with each other? Yeah. A biologist isn't always going to be able to speak to a chemist no. or a mathematician or a computer scientist. Right. That's the hard, absolute hardest thing. So first of all, um, you need to hire people with with curiosity yeah. and also I would say a bit of um, humbleness because it, it, it takes some humility to um, approach someone else. You're, say you're a world expert in one of those domains, right? And then you're, but you're, you know, relative beginner in these other domains. And, you know, it takes some vulnerability and humility to go to someone else who's super expert in the other domain and kind of, ex you know, explain you don't know that much about that yeah. when you're used to being the one that explains your area. Sure. And, and I feel like that's one big reason why there aren't that many true interdisciplinary people, because it's it, it, it's quite hard to the ego to, to go and do that. I mean, I experienced that when I had a, you know, whole first career in computer science, and then I went back to university to do my PhD in neuroscience, yeah. and I was starting as a beginner again, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, sort of the bottom of the pile after after seven years of running my own games company. Yeah. And so it's quite a, you know, it, it takes a certain um, sort of psyche to be able to deal with that. And then on the other thing is what we look for actually at, at DeepMind is, and, and I try and hire for is what I call sort of uh, affectionately glue people, which is people that really are sitting in that intersection of one or more subject areas or disciplines yeah. and can do that translation, spot the connections. And then what you, you don't need everyone to be like that. You just need a few people like that and who can, who can operate at the level where they can understand and explain things to the other world-class experts in yeah. their more narrow domains and then make the connections for them. Yeah. And so sort of say, ah, oh, you know, you, you, you should talk to this person really because yeah. what you're actually talking about is similar. And, and I'm, 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 that's the, one of the things I do actually at DeepMind is, is to try and be a generalist and, yeah. and make those connections. Yeah, I was about to say, there are many glue people out there. They must be quite hard to find. They're it. really hard. I would say we have, you know, maybe out of a thousand people, like um, a couple of dozen of those. Right. 
So they're, they're very rare. Yeah. And it's rare because it's it's a bit like a decathlete. They, they, you know, decathlon sort of, <laughs> they, they, it's hard. It's it, it, the whole way that academia is structured. Yeah. It's hard for those interdisciplinary people because usually when you get um, evaluated for a position or a grant, yeah. um, normally you're, you're judged by an expert panel in your nominal subject yes. and they don't care or know about these other extraneous things that yeah. you know about, which yeah. is the interdisciplinary part. So you, you sort of have to compete on the narrow domain yeah. with the other people who are only doing that yeah. whilst keeping your general interest going. Yeah. So it's actually, it's quite a lot more work uh, and a lot harder to do that. So one of the areas that you're really working hard on, I know at the moment we talked about it uh, when we last met, you know, to discuss the, the, the wired feature was, was protein folding. Yeah. Uh, just give us a sense maybe for the audience on why you felt that particular challenge was one that you wanted to sort of like apply, you know, DeepMind's resources to. Sure. Well, we, we, when, we, when we go after a big problem like that, we, there's a lot of evaluation we do beforehand. So partly one of the main thing, first of all, starting points is to make sure the problem is a big enough impact. If you were to solve it, if you're gonna spend three, four, five years yeah. trying to solve something, you better make sure that it's, it's, it's something that would unlock a lot of new potential. And um, secondly, we also look for things like properties of the problem. Do they suit the types of algorithms we're building? So the kinds of things we look for, is there, is there enough training data? Or is there even better, is there simulations we can create more um, synthetic data from? Um, is there a clear objective function that you're trying to optimize? Um, so, you know, something that some clear metric that your AI system can, can, can um, um, hill climb towards. Uh, and then we also look for things like clear um, external benchmarks, maybe a competition or something that runs by the community that you're going into that has that you can clearly measure your progress against. Yeah. And um, protein folding ticked all of those boxes. So it has um, it has all you know has some data. It has um, some great competitions. This thing called CASP every two years, which is a community-run competition where you have to predict the structure of a protein sure. um, before it's revealed um, by experimentalists. So it's a it's a fantastic competition. And in terms of how important it is, I mean, proteins are essential to every function in your body. Yeah. So it's key for disease. Um, and so if we could understand the shape they fold into, then maybe we could accelerate things like drug discovery. So clearly, if you could crack that problem, it should have a lot of downstream impact. You mentioned uh, CASP. I know there's one going on at the moment. Clearly, you can't sort of like talk about, you know, <laughs> any kind of you know, insider knowledge you might have yeah. about what's going on. But like, that's a really important proving point, isn't it? Because it shows the research going in the right direction. That's right. And, and, and CASP is this incredible, it's in the 14th edition now. So it's been going since um, mid-90s. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and yes, we, we, we sort of, you know, the, the announcement actually, the, the results are going to come out next week. And, you know, we think we've done pretty well, but obviously we, we can't, we, you know, it's, it's confidential until the, the results are officially announced. Um, but it's a great example, I think, in science of one of these really rigorous benchmarks yeah. that, that have been run. And, um, and it's fantastic for, uh, uh, push, you know, allowing the field to progress and making sure that you, you, you really are making progress um, towards the ultimate goal, not, not kind of kidding yourself on the way somehow that, you know, your, your, your kind of, your internal metrics are one thing. Obviously, you're always, you're always measuring how good are your, how good are your algorithms internally and your own benchmarks, yeah. but there's nothing better than like an external measure that's in, by, judged by an independent assessors to really test your metal.
Well, we're going to be looking out for those results next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, we can't have a conversation in 2020, obviously, without talking about coronavirus. So I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, whether DeepMind's been working on, on, on this mm -hmm. particular challenge and, and how machine learning, as far as you know, it has kind of played out and, and had an impact on drug discovery or uh, sure. you know, what we understand about the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, so, so us particularly, I've been, I mean, I've been working on it both professionally at DeepMind and also on a personal level as a scientist. Um, at DeepMind, what we've done is uh, actually when, when very early on, um, the, the COVID virus was sequenced by, I think, some Chinese researchers, genetically sequenced. And so um, what we did is we used an earlier version of AlphaFold, which we thought was pretty good already in March, to... Um, to find to basically uh, uh, look at the structures of some of the some of the um, proteins in the virus yeah. that were understudied. A few of them we already know the structure experimentally, but some of them we didn't. And um, we put our best predictions out, open source that to the community straight away, so that um, uh, people could use it and and maybe target against that. Um, but we didn't make a big um, claim about that because at the time, obviously, um, the CAS competition hadn't been run yet. That was yeah. run over the summer, so we hadn't had external validation of how good our system was. We thought it was pretty good, but we couldn't, we didn't want people necessarily to rely on that until it was externally validated. Yeah. So God forbid if something like that happens again, you know, in a future pandemic, three, four, five years, I would imagine AI playing a much bigger part than it did this time around, um, where I think in some senses, it came a little bit too early for AI to be at the forefront of obviously what the great scientific effort that's going on. And we've seen a lot of, you know, new hope in the last few weeks with the vaccines and so on. So obviously the whole scientific community has come together. And I think AI uh, will be just one component of something like that in the future, um, but maybe, you know, a much more important component than it was this time around. Uh, and then on a personal level, you know, I've worked with the Royal Society to um, try and uh, put out studies on things like masks and the effect of opening schools and other things, bring together some of the top scientists in the UK to help write white papers to um, advise government. So um, let's talk a little bit about this discussion around algorithmic sort of bias and, and data bias. Obviously, AI systems can amplify this in some ways. How do you think about that in terms of what you know, DeepMind can do to sort of combat that? Yeah, so this is a hugely important question. Obviously, um, we have a whole research team looking at this. You know, we, we kind of put it under the rubric of fairness, bias, and interpretability. Yeah. These are all key things that we need um, to understand about systems before you deploy them. Um, a lot of what we do is pure research, so it's not, um, uh, uh, it's, 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 you know, I think it becomes more pressing when you actually create a product out of your yeah. research, and then it's used in the real world to do something that affects people's lives. So um, a lot more research has to be done on that. We work on that. We also collaborate with places like Turing Institute and other places yeah. to sort of look into that further. And I think the next phase of um, development is going to be uh, building analysis tools and, and, and visualization tools to look inside these sort of so-called black boxes of these neural network systems yeah. and understanding better what they do. And I think there we can take inspiration from how we analyze the brain using neuroscience and things like fMRI machines and so on. Mm. What's the equivalent of that for, for AI systems? Um, and just on the optimistic side of, of this, this problem is that, of course, humans are biased in many ways ourselves. And if we build it, the AI systems wrong, it will you know, they will amplify the biases we already have or the des or designers and other people already have. If we build it right, then potentially the AI systems could be less biased than, than we are sure. as, as individuals. Um, so I think it, it's sort of, it's a bifurcation. If, if we sure. do well with it, I think it could actually make the, the societal problem of fairness and bias better um, than it currently is.
So clearly we've had a global pandemic. AI is also a kind of like a, a global technology. And, and to some degree, there's a, a lot of competition going on to sort of, you know, advance research as quickly as possible. We have obviously China and, and the United States. The UK is going to be very important, obviously, for us, you know, as we, we kind of embark on our, our post-Brexit sort of like journey. Um, how, how do you, where do you think we are in the UK and, and how best can we kind of push sort of, you know, deep tech forward and yeah. really become a center of excellence, you think? I mean, I think that the UK, we, you know, we've always punched, punched well above our weight in yeah. terms of pure research. So um, we've got world-class universities, you know, we always have several in the top 10 in the world. Um, and, and if you look at other measures like Nobel Prizes or, or citations and, and big papers, um, we do phenomenally well. Uh, I think that the, the UK needs to really cherish that and build on that for starters. Um, and that includes like post-Brexit, making sure we're still plugged into all the, all the European sort of um, frameworks on research frameworks, because we, we generally get more grants than we, we put money in. Yeah. So that needs to continue somehow and also work, keep welcoming um, the top talent here. Um, in terms of AI, obviously, um, you know, DeepMind's still here. We got, we're, we're located here with pretty much all of our staff. Um, there are many, you know, I think we've helped create a big ecosystem in the UK now of, of AI startups. So I think we do very well on that. So I think there's um, a lot going well. We just need to carry on building on that momentum and investing in things like um, uh, scholarships for underrepresented groups to bring to broaden access to AI technologies and to um, deepen where we're strong. You know, certain universities maybe increase grants to those and so on. Um, from a government level, we're doing that as DeepMind, like sponsoring a lot of master scholarships and also I do that philanthropically as well uh, in my own personal uh, way. So I think all of those things are gonna add. And I think in the future, you know, you've got the UK, you've got places like Canada, mm -hmm. um, France, where there's actually a lot of good AI work going on that maybe could act as a counterweight to the two superpowers. I think in general, let's say you take Canada, UK and France together, um, probably, you know, that, that is as, uh, there's a much going on in those three countries put together as there is in, in those two superpowers. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for the UK actually to have a big um, voice at the table, a big say on how this goes. It's good, good to hear that optimism. So let's maybe um, take a look at some of the questions uh, coming in from the audience. Uh, we've been talking a lot this morning about sustainability. Um, how do you think AI and DeepMind in particular can kind of have an impact on, on clean tech, which yeah. seems to be an area that, you know, is really developing very quickly? Yeah, I, I think it's one of my passion areas actually is for, for I think AI has a lot to play and we've done um, quite a few thing projects already, actually are more sort of um, applied projects. Yeah. Um, two of the better known ones are uh, um, applying our AI systems, actually very similar ones to, to AlphaGo, um, to control the cooling systems in data centers. Yeah. Uh, data centers use, you know, large amount of, of energy. Um, actually, Google's ones are mostly renewable energy now, which is great. But even still, we save 30% of the, of, the, of the energy used in the data center by just more efficiently operating the cooling systems. Mm -hmm. you know, there's hundreds of different switches and pumps and fans and things you can turn on. And, um, and, and AI is perfectly suited to managing that. And then we've developed that further recently as a service on cloud, uh, Google Cloud, to, uh, we call it, uh, you, you know, sort of um, building adaptive controls. So big industrial buildings, uh, office buildings, uh, I guess not so much now during COVID, but but in normal times, use a huge amount of energy, sure. right? Again, with the, you know, um, air conditioning and heating and all of that stuff. And um, it's the same kind of principle that we use in the data centers, but now in terms of controlling all the building uh, uh, systems uh, uh, that, that, that govern, you know, climate temperature and all that sort of stuff. And that saves a huge amount of obviously money, but also um, energy yeah. um, by more efficiently uh, running all those systems.
Sure. N another question coming in from the audience. Uh, there was one about neuropsychology. Uh, how influential is it when developing AI solutions? An, an area I know that's uh, yes. dear to your heart. Yeah, so it, it's actually very influential on a certain type of level. So what we're not trying to do when we say we're neuroscience inspired is we're not trying to copy how the brain works, right? Yeah. Um, like reverse engineering. Some people are trying to do that, yeah. but we don't think that's the right way to build AI because, of course, there's diff massive differences, obviously, between a carbon-based system like our brains and yeah. a silicon-based system like a computer. Sure. Um, so the implementation details will be different, but what you're interested in is the, is the, is the principles of general intelligence. So the yeah. architecture, the representations, and the algorithms. And so we call that systems neuroscience, and that's where the level that we look at neuroscience and psychology at to, to get inspiration. Okay. Thank you. Another question around how you balance, uh, you know, the, the work for Google and, and Google products. Clearly, you have to deliver sort of products for Google. Um, how best to balance that relationship? Yeah, very big. I mean, you can think of it as they're our biggest client in a way, right? If you think about all the the the, the things, different things we do, and um, and so it's obviously we we've actually had a hundred product launches now within Google. So when you use Google devices, you may not know it, but most of the time you'll be using some of our tech will be under the hood. Probably the best example of that is WaveNet, which is the world's best text-to-speech system, and uh, we developed that a few years ago and scaled it up. And now pretty much any device you speak to on Android or Google device anywhere the voice that's speaking back to you will be um, will be WaveNet, our technology. So that's just one example. Um, on the other hand, obviously, we, we do a lot of other partnerships um, and there are a lot of other work that we do that's outside of Google, especially in the scientific realm. So it's quite a nice balance. And, the, and one nice thing about Google is that when you when you build a product, when you build some research and you, you, you discover something new, you can straight away put it in a product that reaches a billion people. So that's fantastic for impact uh, and also for getting you know back sort of real world information about how how good are your algorithms really you know once they go out of the lab yeah absolutely once once the, people yeah. are actually using the actually product and using it at yeah, scale absolutely yeah. so a final question from the audience that synthetic data could be tricky how do you manage that avoid issue including biases yeah well, synthetic data, actually, interestingly, I mean, we're experts in synthetic data because we started with games and virtual worlds and, and, and where we generate all of our own data, actually. And one reason I did that was when we were a startup, um, obviously a small startup, we had no customers and no data. So how, how would we compete with, with, you know, big companies that had obviously all their consumer data? Uh, and, and one of the answers was to use games and then generate that ourselves with like Atari games and run the simulators and then generate our own data. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the, I guess, the, the, the founding principles of DeepMind. One of the reasons we chose games, obviously, is also my background in games. So, um, and, and so, but of course, you know, as we've now matured, you, you've got to be careful with synthetic data. You're not generating it in, bi in a biased way. But just like we discussed with fairness and bias, if you, it's also the optimistic side of that is that if you generate synthetic data, you can mathematically analyze it and make sure that it's not biased, okay. right? Which is which you can't really do with real data because yeah. you just have whatever data you have. Yeah. So, so I think synthetic data has, has the potential, if you analyze it in the right way, to be more balanced. Okay, one final question. Uh, you're a chess prodigy. Um, have you been watching The Queen's Gambit? And so, <laughs> what do you think of it? I have. It seems like me and, and, and the rest of the world. And <laughs> I watched it actually as soon as it came out. Of course, how could I not, given it was about chess and, and, and it was such a great story? I thought it was fantastic. And I actually um, thought it was an um, extremely realistic portrayal in many ways of, the, of what it's like to be a child chess prodigy and the exhilaration of it, but also the pressure, perhaps minus the psychedelic drugs. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I mean, and the chess was extremely accurate, which is unusual in films, but I guess it's because Gary Kasparov, I found out after afterwards was a consultant on it. So, oh, I so I, I guess he made sure that the chess part was, was really accurate.
Well, but I recommend it. Well, well if, if people out there aren't watching the Deep Vine documentary on Netflix, the, the Queen's Gambit is the, is the second best. Um, Demis, thank you so much for joining us. Really de uh, delightful to have you here at Wildlife. No thank problem. You. Thank you.